How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in our study, let's uh, make sure that we're in fellowship, which means that we need to confess any known sin to God, and instantly he forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness so that we're restored to fellowship and we can uh, resume and continue our Christian walk. It's God the Holy Spirit who is the enabler in our spiritual life, the one who empowers us, and we're either living according to the sin nature or we're walking according to the Holy Spirit. And when we stop walking by the Holy Spirit in sin, the only way to recover is to confess our sin and be restored to fellowship. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are truly thankful that we have your word. It's such a tremendous privilege to have your word. When we think about the history of the Bible, the history of the uh, original revelation, preservation of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament down through the centuries of antiquity, and its preservation even at times when it was lost but stored in the temple, and recovered, and then in the New Testament period, the writing of the epistles through the apostles and the preservation, the circulation of that, uh, of the, their letters throughout the Roman Empire, preservation down through the ages, recovery uh, many times down through uh, the period prior to the Reformation and after the Reformation with the printing press. Father, we have such a wonderful treasure in your word. And it is the only way in which we know truth. For the psalmist said, it's in your light that we see light. So, Father, now as we continue our study in Jude, as we continue to learn what it means to contend for the faith, recognizing that first and foremost we have to contend within our own soul. We have to uh, send out a search and destroy mission to wipe out the uh, human viewpoint thinking, the carnal thinking that is continuously seeking to dominate our our own thinking, and to replace it with the truth of your word. So, Father, we pray that we might be focused, concentrate this, this uh, during this class, and that we might come to understand the truth that's being taught here. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study in Jude, and in this lesson, uh, we're just going to look at the first example that Jude gives of God's judgment on those who are disobedient to him. God's judgment on those who are disobedient to him. Uh, this is not these examples, as I pointed out at the end of the last lesson, are examples of the, God's judgment on disobedience and unbelief. It is not restricted to examples of God's judgment only on unbelievers. This is a major problem that we have uh, when we come to a book like uh, like Jude in today's environment, is that there are uh, many Christians and pastors who teach a form of the gospel that is referred to as lordship salvation. Lordship salvation. This is actually a perversion and misunderstanding of the gospel in many different ways, and I've studied and taught on this in other lessons. But one of the basic ways in which lordship is taught is the idea that if you are a, and then they'll usually add some adjective, true believer, genuine believer, real believer, sincere believer in Jesus Christ, if you are truly saved, if you are genuinely saved, and see the Bible never adds adjectives to belief, never talks about truly believing, uh, genuinely believing, sincerely believing. No adverbs are ever added to the verb belief. No adjectives are added to the noun for faith or salvation. It's only believe. If you believe, you either believe or you don't believe. You don't truly believe, genuinely believe. But that's that's a, a, a redundancy. You believe. And if you believe something is true 
And what you believe to be true is that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that at that instant you are saved, you're justified. God the Father imputes or credits or reckons to your account righteousness, the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be found in us. It's a free gift. That means you don't do anything to earn it or deserve it. You don't do anything to keep it. It's yours forever. Now, Christians can be disobedient. Christians can be extremely disobedient because they still retain a sin nature. The only thing that is broken at salvation is the tyranny of the sin nature, which is the focal point that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6. And there are studies in Romans on that chapter. The tyranny of the sin nature is broken, but its presence is not removed. Its power is not reduced. The sin nature is just as powerful five minutes after you were saved as it was five minutes before you were saved. The difference is you have a capacity, a potential, a capability to say no after salvation you didn't have before. It's not automatic. Spiritual growth is not automatic. Spiritual growth is a potential. That means it's something that is possible after salvation, but it's activated by your choice, by my choice. We can choose to live as a new person in Christ or choose to live as we did before we were saved, but how we choose to to, to live uh, is not an indicator of whether we are spiritually alive or not. That's the error of lordship salvation. The reason it's called lordship salvation is because there are those who have said that you're not truly saved, it's not genuine faith unless you make Jesus Lord of your life. And uh, that's sort of a little bit of a simplistic, reductionistic approach to their view. But the idea is is that the genuine believer is going to produce fruit that is consistent with his genuine faith. If that fruit isn't there, then you weren't truly saved. But that's not what the Bible uh, teaches, and that's covered uh, especially in this uh, series I've done on salvation and other things. The reason I bring that up as an introduction to this lesson and to this part of Jude is because when we look at this epistle, Jude is writing to believers, but he's warning those believers about a group of false teachers that have come in from outside the church. And they're now inside the church, and they're having a, a, a uh, destructive impact on the belief and the teaching inside the church because they're teaching heresy. And they're not believers. They are not regenerate. They only are holding to a form of godliness. They, they are, they're, they're counterfeits. They're actually the devil's disciples and unbelievers but they are not saved. And we know that because of the terms that are used to describe them in Jude. But Jude's point is to warn about that, warn the, those in, in, uh, that he's writing to that judgment is certain for false teachers. God's judgment is certain for false teachers. And so he draws examples from the Old Testament to show of God's certain judgment, that God judges Unbelief. Now, that unbelief can be unbelief at gospel hearing, the person who does not believe the gospel, or it can be a believer who continues in uh, unbelief after salvation, a disobedient believer. So his examples are not examples of God's judgment on unbelievers or God's judgment on believers. They're mixed. It's their illustrations of just the fact that God judges unbelief. That's it. So don't make the mistake of thinking that these are um, that these are, are are believers. They are unbelievers, and that's demonstrated in a number of different ways. The primary focus in this epistle is to challenge the his readers to uh, make it a point to uh, defend and fight for the gospel. He says I, in verse three, "I was very diligent to write to you." or while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, indicating Jude's original purpose as we studied. He says, I found it necessary, and I pointed out this is the inner compulsion, the leadership of God the Holy Spirit within Jude, directing him through the process of inspiration 
to write on something else in his humanity, in his own uh, desire to address a situation. He wanted to write about one topic, but God the Holy Spirit and his oversight of the and his superintendence of the writers of Scripture says, no, Jude, you're writing about this. You're writing about false teachers. So he said originally he wanted to write about common, our common salvation, but he found it necessary, that compulsion of the Holy Spirit, to write to you, challenging you, exhorting you, encouraging you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. That is a body of doctrine. It is a finite body of doctrine that we are to contend for, and that means to fight or wrestle or work toward, and that specifically relates to what's going on uh, inside your soul and, secondly, outside your soul. The word there related to the the uh, basic verb agonizo, agonizomai, which means to agonize, to struggle, to fight for something with the uh, preposition epi, which in, indicates uh, intensity. As I pointed out, we start with our thinking, we all have strongholds of false doctrine. Now, using that term strongholds because we're going to see an interesting analogy today when we go back to this first example from the Old Testament. When Israel went into the land, when the Israel was going to go into the land that God had promised them, they initially sent in 12 spies. And when they sent in these 12 spies, their purpose was to recon the land. They were going to reconnoiter the land and to evaluate something. They misinterpreted what they were supposed to evaluate. But they were to check out what was going on, and, one, and when they came back, they said, well, we don't think we can conquer the land because there's giants in the land, there's a lot of people in the land, and there are uh, fortified cities in the land. Now, if we think about the land as being our soul, we have uh, fortified areas of thought within our soul, human viewpoint thought, which we hold on to desperately because in in the deception of our sin nature, we think that we can really make life work without God except for maybe one or two situations. So we have areas where we are deeply, profoundly committed to making life work on our own terms apart from God. And so these are, by analogy, fortified cities within our thinking. Just as Israel eventually had to go into the land and conquer it, the first thing they did was they took out the major cities, and then they had a mopping-up operation, taking out lots of smaller towns and villages in different different battles and different fights. That is an analogy of the whole Christian life, is usually when a person gets saved— there may be 6, 8, 10, 12 major areas of uh, disobedience and failure in their life, and, and often they, they, they go after those and there's a, a, an initial change in those areas, but then the rest of life we're fighting really the, um, the, 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 the underlying problems that give rise to that, our, our desperate need to make life work on our own, our desire to maintain self-sufficiency instead of God-dependency, our desire to uh, uh, assert our own ability over against God's ability, and that manifests itself a lot of different ways. So the primary focal point of the battle is in our thinking. Then, secondly, within the thinking of our families. If you're a father, that's your responsibility to oversee the spiritual development of the family and especially the children. It's not the mother's job. It's not the grandparents' job. It's not the church's job. It is the father's job to actively be engaged in shaping the spiritual life of the family and the children. And then the third sphere of our activity for contending for the faith is in the church to make sure that we maintain an orthodox belief system and a biblically sound philosophy of ministry. This is what Paul's referencing in Second Second Corinthians 10, 4, and 5. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, are fleshly. Now, that's really important because we have to understand that the entire uh, the entire framework for uh, understanding the spiritual life as it's uh, taught in the Scripture is of warfare. We are at war. We are all soldiers in a war. And the weapons of our war are not the weapons 
of the world system. They're not the weapons of the culture. They're not the weapons of human viewpoint. They are distinct. They're the weapons that God has described in his word. So how we do what we do is right. A right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. It always is wrong. And this is one of the problems that uh, Israel face when they're going into the conquest. They try to go in and accomplish the conquest on their own terms at times, and then they would have massive defeat. A right thing done in a wrong way is wrong 100% of the time. So Paul says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or fleshly, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Now, within the context there, we see that what he means by strongholds or fortresses is just that that's the metaphor, that's the figure of speech to get that combat image, that siege image in our mind. But what he means by that are fortifications, strongholds of belief, of thinking. And so ultimately what we have to understand is that the Christian life is about thinking, thinking. It's not about doing. It's about thinking. You change the way a person thinks, you'll change what they do. But if all you focus on is changing what a people, what a person does, it becomes superficial. You don't change them from the inside out, and they become like Jesus accused the Pharisees of being whitewashed sepulchers. They're just uh, cleaned up on the outside, but they're uh, dark and nasty and gnarly on the inside because their their real spiritual life or their thinking has not changed. So we have to change thought, uh, arguments. Uh, things that exalt itself against the knowledge of God. The only thing that can exalt itself against the knowledge of God would be knowledge that's unrelated to truth or not based on the Scripture. So we have to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of God. Notice, not every action. Why? Thought precedes action. Action flows from thought. Change the thinking, you change the people. Now, as we look at these... Uh, these apostates that Paul is warning about, and uh, excuse me, the Jude, I think I said Paul earlier, the Jude's warning about here, we see all these different terms that are used of them, and these taken in their collective indicate that they are, uh, they are unbelievers. They are not regenerate. They're godless men. They're changing the grace of God into a license for immorality. They deny Jesus Christ. This is related to the similar description that we have in Peter, that they deny the Lord who bought them. So they're clearly unbelievers. They're dreamers who pollute their own bodies, or excuse me, like Sodom, they're given to sexual immorality in verse 7. They're dreamers who pollute their own bodies in verse 8. They're like compared to unreasoning animals and being self-destructive in verse 10. They are blemishes at your love feast. That is, they are, uh, they're, they're, they're a blemish. They are, uh, a, a complete atrocity at the presence of the Lord's table. They're shepherds who feed only themselves. They don't feed others, so they're false shepherds. They're clouds without rain, which means they're useless. They're, same with the metaphor of trees without fruit in verse 12. And wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame. They're called wandering stars from whom blackest darkness has been reserved, indicating the you know worst form of punishment in the lake of fire. Grumblers, fault finders, boasting about themselves, scoffers who follow their own ungodly desires. They do not have the spirit. Now that is, we'll see, that's a mistranslation there because your translators in the English capitalize spirit, and that is not accurate. It is not talking about the Holy Spirit in that verse. It's talking about the human spirit, that which comes through regeneration, indicating that they are unregenerate. They're called sukikos. Same term Paul uses in First First uh, Corinthians chapter 2, verse uh, 14, which indicates uh, soulish people who are not regenerate. So that's clearly a term for unbelievers. They flatter others for their own advantage, verse 16, and they are people who divide you, verse 19. So all of this indicates they're unbelievers. Now, Paul, I mean, excuse me, Jude says, for certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this co- condemnation. In other words, God in eternity past identified these as condemned because they had they were not believers. John three eighteen says that um, he, if, uh, if we believe in the uh, 
we believe in the Son of God, we're not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So we're born under condemnation, and so they're marked out or identified for this condemnation. They're called ungodly, which in every clear passage refers to unbelievers. There's a couple of ambiguous passages, but the rule of interpretation is always you interpret the ambiguous by the clear and so it's it's uh, uh, best to understand this term ungodly is always referring to unbelievers. They turn the grace of God into lewdness. That means they actually uh, uh, just destroy the whole concept of grace and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a, a similar to the same examples that Peter uses in Second Peter uh, chapter two verses five through seven, where he uses examples of the unbelievers before. Uh, the uh, Noahic flood, uh, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and then future judgment on the heavens and the earth. This is a picture. Each of these, are, though, are examples of of, of uh, unbelievers. So, Second Peter two one: There were false prophets among the people, even as there were also false teachers among you. This is the prediction that Peter had: who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the Lord who bought them. So they. this is a great passage for unlimited atonement. Christ died for all, but there are some who, for whom Christ died who deny him, and this will bring on great destruction. Now, we're in verse 5. So starting at verse 5, what Jude does is he says that he reminds them and uses three examples of the certainty of divine judgment. He says, I want to remind you, uh, which in essence he's saying in, in the original, he says, I want uh, to uh, bring back to your knowledge. I want to put you in uh, remembrance of this. I want you to know this, that one, though you once knew this, in other words, he's reminding them of a previously taught doctrine. He says, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, a couple of things we ought to note here as we look at this verse. The first thing is the word saved in the phrase, having saved the people. Now, as I pointed out many, many times, one of the greatest dangers to understanding the truth of Scripture today uh, comes from evangelicals who use biblical terminology in ways the Bible doesn't use it. And in everyday Christian language, in everyday evangelical Christian jargon, people say, well, are you saved? And by that they mean, are you justified and are you going to go to heaven for eternity when you die? And they all, almost always use the word saved to describe that. But in the Bible, the word saved, the Greek verb sozo, refers to each of three different phases or stages of salvation. Sometimes it's used to refer to phase one salvation, which is more technically called justification. This is how we find it used in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. That is talking about phase one salvation, which is just a a focus on justification as the more technical term, the more technical reference uh, for justification. Now, another way in which the word uh, salvation is used is in the sense of ongoing uh, spiritual growth, ongoing spiritual growth. And this is uh, used this way, uh, for example, in uh, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed... See, he calls them beloved, which means indicates that they're already saved and in the family of God. That's a term that is always used only of believers. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So Ephesians 2 said that that salvation is not of works, lest any man should boast, 
But this salvation is worked out. So this is not talking about justification by faith alone in Christ alone. This is talking about the salvation after justification, being saved from the uh, power of sin. So first of all, we're saved from the penalty of sin, justification, phase one. Phase two, we're saved from the power of sin, realizing, Romans 6, that we have been identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection so that we can then go forward and learn to apply scriptural truth, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, as Paul says in Romans. And so here we have just working out your salvation. So we call that phase two salvation, which is also called the spiritual life, spiritual growth, or sanctification, the experiential ongoing uh, sanctification. So we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Then another way in which we have the word saved used is with reference to our ultimate deliverance from sin and evil in this life when we are absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. This is the way in which the word is often used in a number number of passages uh, in, this, in the Scripture. So we have salvation or uh, justification, we have salvation sanctification, and we have salvation glorification. So when we look in Jude here and we see... Um, We see Jude uh, talking about the fact that that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, we need to ask uh, the question, is this talking uh, using saved in a theological or any kind of a spiritual sense, or is it using the term in just a general everyday use of physical deliverance? And um, the answer to this is this is probably physical deliverance. As the Israelites were delivered out of slavery in Egypt, It's not being used in a soteriological sense. It's not a reference to justification. It's not a reference to their spiritual growth or sanctification. And it is not a reference to their absence from the body being face-to-face with the Lord. It's just being talking about their physical deliverance out of the land of, of Egypt. So this occurred in approximately 1446 B.C., when Moses came to Pharaoh uh, under the authority of God, demanding that uh, Pharaoh let the people go and release the Israelites from slavery. Now, when the Israelites left after the ten plagues, it's interesting to note that none of the Jews were affected by those plagues. They were isolated by the Egyptians into the nor- a northern area known as Goshen, and these plagues did not impact them. And the final plague was the uh, plague of the death of the firstborn and the solution to avoid the judgment of God and the death of the firstborn in the family was to apply the blood of a lamb without spot or blemish upon the doorposts of the house. And Scripture uh, does not indicate that any Jews lost their lives. All of the Jews applied the blood to their doorposts of their house. Therefore, everybody within that house that was uh, metaphorically covered by the blood of the Lamb uh, survived. This is a picture of our uh, redemption by the Lord Jesus Christ. In order for them to be there uh, and to be delivered, they had to believe the promise of God, and they were believing in his promise of deliverance. Again and again in, uh, in, in Exodus, there are statements about the belief of that Exodus generation. So we can say that almost exclusively that generation was made up of people who believed in the promise of God for salvation in an Old Testament salvation sense. Phase one, they're all justified in the Old Testament, that whole generation. But they were disobedient, just as Christians today are disobedient many, 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 many times after saved and commit some of the most horrible, egregious, shocking sins that you would never think a genuine Christian would do because we all have the same rotten old sin nature that we had before we were uh, we were saved. So what we're talking about here in Jude 5 
is first of all the salvation that's talked about here is that physical deliverance that occurred as the Israelites came out of Egypt, passed through the Red Sea, and entered into a new existence as a free people. They were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb in the Passover event. So the Passover event is their justification, a symbolic of their justification, their physical deliverance or rescue from Egypt is a physical sign or confirmation of their spiritual status, and they're delivered out of the land. But they've been believers, and there were times after that that they believed God, but there were many times when they did not. And that belief, in unbelief rather, increased with time, until God had to bring a temporal judgment upon those uh, people in the Exodus generation. And they were prohibited from entering into the promised land because they disobeyed God. And so God judged them, and they all had to die physically before the next generation could go into the land. The only two could go into the land were Joshua and Caleb. Now, what you will hear from some people, or one possible objection here would be, well, how do you how do you know they were believers? Because this passage says that they were destroyed because they did not believe. Of all the generation that that was delivered from Egypt, there were only two that went into the land: Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb demonstrated their belief in God's promise of giving them the land. It wasn't a promise related to ultimate salvation, but just the promise that God would give them the land. And for that, they were allowed to live and go into the land. Everybody else died because they failed to believe God at that point, not, not a salvation promise. And, and another person or two other people we could speak of were also prohibited from going into the land, and their physical life was given up before the people entered the land. But we would never doubt their eternal salvation, and that's Aaron the high priest and Moses the great deliverer and lawgiver of Israel. But Moses disobeyed God at some point and was prohibited from entering the land, as did as was Aaron. So the, the judgment of God in destroying or taking the life of everyone in the Exodus generation except for Joshua and Caleb, does not mean those people were not justified with eternal life in heaven, but that after they were justified or saved, they were disobedient, and there are consequences to our disobedience after salvation. So what I want to do now is go back to the Old Testament or to a couple of New Testament passages first and then to the Old Testament to look at that particular episode. That episode is referred to in two key passages in the New Testament. One is in Hebrews and the other is in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 10. So let's just start with Hebrews, uh, turning back a couple of pages from Jude back to Hebrews, turning to the end of Hebrews chapter 3 and the beginning of Hebrews chapter 4. This is a section in Hebrews where the the writer of Hebrews is encouraging uh, his his, uh, recipients to not give up. They're under persecution. They're under hostility from friends, family, other other Jews because they have become uh, Christians, believers in Jesus as the Messiah. And so if they give up their faith, it's not that they'll lose their eternal life, but that they will lose rewards and blessings both in time and in eternity. And so they are being warned not to give up uh, because if they do, they will lose rewards. And the analogy is to that Exodus generation that because of unbelief, they didn't enter into the blessing that God was going to give them. It was a blessing in time entering into and conquering the land. So in Hebrews three eighteen and 19, we read uh, this, this warning related to their rebellion. Actually, I'll begin in verse 16, which reads, For who, that is that a reference to the Exodus generation, 
having heard, having heard the promise of God to give them the land, rebelled. They disobeyed God's promise. It wasn't a promise related to eternal life at that point. It was temporal blessing, their blessing in time. Indeed, the writer of Hebrews says, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? So it's talking about that whole generation with the exception of Caleb and Joshua. Now, verse 17 says, now with whom was he angry 40 years? Talking about God's judgment. As we've studied in the past, God does not have human emotions such as anger, but that this is used as an anthropopathism, that is a figure of speech, Uh, attributing to God a human emotion he doesn't actually possess in order for us to catch the thrust of what is being said. Um, Actually, the imagery in the Old Testament is also what's called an anthropomorphism. An anthropomorphism is when you attribute to God a human characteristic or quality, physical human characteristic or quality, which he doesn't actually possess in order to communicate his policy or his plans to us. For example, the hand of God. Well, God doesn't have hands. He doesn't have a physical body like we do, so he doesn't have hands. But the term hand of God is used as a figure of speech to describe his power and his authority. Or the eye of God goes to and fro around all the earth. The eye of God is, again, a metaphor for his knowledge and his omnipresence and his perception of everything going on in the earth. The literal Hebrew phrase for God's wrath is that God's nose burns. Well, God doesn't have a nose. But in human experience, when somebody gets really mad, their face turns red, their nose turns red, and and uh, they, they, they just get build up their anger. And so the Hebrew idiom for anger was somebody's nose is burning. So they would express that about God's wrath in terms of God's nose is burning. Well, God doesn't have a literal nose. It's just talking about his what what it's talking about his judgment. And uh anger, wrath are things when we get very mad, very angry, something happens, something unexpected, something blocking our desires, we don't not getting our way. That's not what's going on with God at all. In fact, for billions and billions and billions of years, God knew this generation would be disobedient. So if this is talking about something happening in human history and God's reaction to it, well, God's always known about that, so he hasn't been eternally angry. Uh, it is just a metaphor for the harshness, the, the power, uh, uh, the rigor of God's judgment against disobedience. So he is angry. Forty was, the, the, the question is now, was God, now with whom was God angry for 40 years? With whom was God bringing judgment. That's the sense of that metaphor. Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? So he is, his judgment is upon that generation that disobeyed him at uh, Kadesh Barnea. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? Now, his rest is not talking about the millennial kingdom. It's not talking about a higher level of spirituality. It's talking about the rest God promised the Israelites once they entered into the land as a place of temporal blessing. And so they were prohibited from entering into that rest, but that did not negate any of God's other promises to them. So verse 19 says, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Now, there are a lot of Christians who have unbelief in most of their Christian life, and at the judgment seat of Christ, they're still going to be saved, but they're not going to have any eternal rewards. Uh, They are going to enter as through fire, and that is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in the judgment seat of Christ. So Hebrews 4.1 goes on to say, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, that is for us, and here entering his rest is used as a metaphor, transferring it to the millennial kingdom and our ruling and reigning with Christ in the future kingdom. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached, that is literally the word was preached, the message was preached, doesn't say gospel, evangelion, it says the word was preached to us as well as to them, but the word or the message which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in terms of those who heard it. 
So the issue was they had a message. That message was from God saying, I'm going to give you this piece of real estate. It's yours. It's got your name on it. You've got the title deed. All you have to do is trust me to take it. Uh, I've already given it to you. So the issue isn't, can you take it? The issue is, it's yours. Will you trust me in how to take it? And so uh, they failed to believe that God had already given this that to them, and so they uh, exercised a lack of faith. Okay, this is the same episode mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses uh, 1 through 11. I'm just going to hit the high points here. Paul uses the same example to encourage and to warn the uh, Corinthian believers. He says, moreover, brethren, indicating he's talking to the Corinthians as believers, he says, I don't want you be, to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. These are terms used to represent baptism or identification with Moses, as we see in the next verse. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They're identified with Moses in terms of his faith in moving to a new life. This is another indication they are saved. They are a regenerate generation. All ate the same spiritual food, that is the manna, uh, and all drank the same spiritual drink, the water from the rock, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. See, that whole generation drank from the rock, the spiritual rock of Christ. They internalized the promise, the messianic promise of God, so that whole generation is soteriologically secure in a future in heaven. But... With most of them, God was not well pleased. Why? Because of disobedience. Not that they are unbelievers, but that they are exercising unbelief in terms of the day-to-day promise of God. With most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Think about this. You have a generation of about two and a half to three and a half million people who are going to spend 40 years traveling in a rather small area of the the, uh, Sinai Peninsula, and every day they got to bury, on the average, about 12 to 15,000 people. Now, there were some plagues that hit them from God's judgment that took out 20, 30, 40,000 at a time. But in terms of the average, in order for 3.5 million people to be removed over a 40-year period, you've got to have about 12 to 15,000 funerals a day. And so there's going to be a constant reminder that you're out of God's blessing and under condemnation. Now, why, why did these things happen? Happened, first of all, because they were disobedient. Second, as an example to us. Verse 6, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. What were they lusting for? They were lusting for the leeks and the garlics of Egypt. They just wanted to go back to their comfort zone. Does that mean that it's evil to eat... Uh, Food seasoned with garlic and onions? No. But what is evil is being giving up your blessings that God has given you, your freedom that God has given you, so that you can wallow in carnality and self-indulgence and self-absorption. So that's what was the idolatrous aspect. It wasn't necessarily that they were creating an idol out of gold, silver, or wood, although they did that with when they convinced Aaron to build the uh, uh, idol of, the, uh, uh, of, of uh, the, the bull. But that they also had made an idol of their own desires and their own lusts and their own uh, appetites. So Paul warned in verse 7, Do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. So these are various judgments that God brought upon them in the wilderness. And, and um, Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now, I want to look at one example of this judgment in the Old Testament, and so I want to turn to uh, Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. This is the uh, poster picture 
of Israel's disobedience. There were other times when they were disobedient in the wilderness and complained and grumbled, but this is the major event. This is the major event, and we come across this in uh, Numbers chapter 13. This is the crucial crux episode for this generation. God has promised to provide for them. Sometimes they complained about the manna. They complained about uh, the leadership that God gave them. They complained about a lot of things, and God brought judgment upon them. They lacked patience while they were waiting for Moses to come down from the Mount Sinai with the law, and they uh, enticed Aaron to build the golden calf. All of these were signs of their disobedience, but this is the critical one in Numbers chapter 13. This is when God instructed them to send the 12 spies, one from each of the 12 tribes, into the promised land, the land that was still dominated by the Canaanites, and to spy out the land. And this is the the original command is given by God in verses 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. Okay, so here's God's word. Here's God's command. He said, send in 12 men to spy. The word there in in, uh, in Hebrew is tour. So it's sort of like our, pronounced like our English word to tour a country, and so you can have a, a, a remember that. Uh, it may, means to explore. It means to reconnoiter. It's a recon mission. It's a long-range reconnaissance patrol. Now, what did God say their purpose was? Did God say their purpose was to go into the land to see if they could conquer the people? No. He said, go in and spy out the land, recon the land, which I'm going to give to you. So they miss, they, they didn't interpret the promise right. Instead of literally interpreting what he said and hearing it, God saying, I'm going to give this land to you, they're saying, saying if they can win the battle. Because they misinterpreted God's command, they, they disobeyed God's intent and they had no belief. So this shows the importance of making sure that you understand precisely and accurately what God says to do. They did not understand what God said to do, and therefore they ended up in disobedience because of their own uh, uh, failure to trust God. So in the next few verses from 3 down through verse uh, 15, 16, we have a list of the different men from each of the 12 tribes that were sent in. This shows its historical accuracy with this kind of a detail, identifying specifically the uh, names of each individual. And included within the group are Caleb and Joshua. Uh, Caleb and Joshua, and they are uh, two of the key leaders. So they are sent again. The purpose is spelled out again in verse 17. Then Moses sent them to tour, to spy out, to recon the land, and said to them, Go up this way into the south, into the Negev, that's the southern part of Israel down near the Sinai Peninsula. Then go up to the mountains, that's the hill country of of Judah and the hill country of Samaria. It's extremely rugged, very similar to the hill country of Texas, but more rugged. And see what the land is like. Notice Moses doesn't say, see if we can conquer the inhabitants. He said, see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many. Find out what's there. Don't You're not going to see if we can conquer them, because we already know we can because God's given it to us. Uh, but they misunderstood the directions, whether the land is rich or poor, whether they're forced, they're not, be a good courage, bring, bring some of the fruit of the land, and, and uh, it was a time of the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and they spied out the land, that is, they did the recon. From the wilderness of Zin, which is down in the Negev, as far as Rehob, near the entrance of Hamath, and they went up through the south, came to Hebron, which is in the geographical center of, of Judah, uh, Achimon, Sheshai, Talmai, the descendants of Anak were there. So he names three individuals who are descendants of Anak. Anak was a giant who was about 10 or 11 feet tall, mentioned earlier uh, in uh, uh, Deuteronomy. The descendants of Anak were there. Now, Hebron was built seven years before Zon. That's just a, par- a paragraph there. Anak is mentioned again in Joshua 15:4. the descendants of Anak called the Anakim. And they were giants. So they look at these giants 
And the average Israelite we know from that time, who was, uh, we know this from graves that we found and measuring the skeletons, were about five and a half feet tall. And so they're running into the sons of the, uh, sons of Anak, the Anakim, who are about 10 feet tall, 11 feet tall. And so there are, they, they feel like this is impossible to go into battle. Then they came, we read in verse 23, they went to the valley of Eshkol. Eshkol is a Hebrew word that means cluster, like a cluster of grapes. And they um, cut down a branch with one Eshkol, or cluster of grapes, huge cluster showing the uh, prosperity of the land and the fertility of the land, a cluster of grapes. They carried it between two of them on a pole, and they also brought some pomegranates and figs. This shows the productivity and potential of the land. And then we're told why it's called the Valley of Eshkol because of this cluster of grapes. And after 40 days, they returned from their recon mission, and they returned to Moses and Aaron, verse 26, and they give their report, verse 27. Yes, indeed, we went through the land, and it was a land uh, flowing with milk and honey. This is an idiom for the fact that it is extremely fertile. Uh, milk is the product of cattle, so there's plenty of feed, there's plenty of pasture for cattle, for sheep, for goats. And honey, honey is a product of bees. What do bees do? Bees fly around and they pollinate all of the different crops. And so because there are plenty of bees, there's plenty of uh, uh, pollen, there are plenty of crops, and they're producing a large amount of honey. So these were, uh, these are, these are figures of speech indicating uh, the presence of, uh, of, of, a, of a fertile land that is good for the raising of, of cattle and sheep and domestic animals as well as the production of, of crops. But they say, verse 28, nevertheless, the people in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large, and we saw the descendants of Anak there. The phrase that the people of the land are strong indicates there's a lot of people there. We're going to be outnumbered. Not only that, but... but the cities are fortified. We don't have siege engines. We're not trained in, as combat engineers. We don't have a way to to overcome these mighty walls around the city. And not only that, but there are giants in the land. So they're focusing on three problems, and 10 of the 12 spies are focusing on the circumstances, and all they can do is talk in terms of defeat. No Christian who will ever succeed who just who talks in negatives, talks in terms of the problems that he faces. Uh, the person who's going to have the right mental attitude doesn't look at the problems. He looks at God's solutions, and he looks at God's character and looks at life always in terms of the character of God and how the character of God enables and strengthens us to surmount whatever opposition difficulties are uh, problems we might encounter. God plus one is a majority, and God is always stronger than any problem we ever face. God knew about every problem you and I will face from eternity past. He's never surprised, even though you may be surprised. God gave us the solution to, for every problem from eternity past. So after the uh, ten naysayers, the ten who have unbelief, talk about the Amalekites in verse 20, 29, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, oh my, all these people are there. There's nothing we can do about it. Caleb, exercising leadership, uh, takes the initiative, calms the people down and says, in contrast to the others, he says, well, let's go up and take it. Uh, we're all able to overcome it. His focus is on God. He understood God promised that the land was theirs. Everybody else is saying, we got to go there to see if we can take it. Caleb and Joshua understand that, that God's going to give it to them. They just have to see what the lay of the land is. So uh, all these other 10 of the 12, verse 31, the men who had gone up with him said, we're not able to go up against the people for they're stronger than we are. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land and said that they just couldn't, couldn't conquer the giants and the people, etc. So what happens? The people weep and wail. Uh, everybody exercises unbelief. They don't uh, trust in God, and they all whine and moan about how bad everything is. And verse 2 of chapter 14, all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in the wilderness. 
If only we had died. If we could just go back into slavery, life would be so much better. If we could just live like unbelievers, that would be better. If we could just be uh, enslaved by the Egyptians and idolatry and everything else, we'd be better. Why did God do this to us? Typical of anybody start blaming God for all of their uh, perceived problems uh, rather than trusting in God. The response of Moses and Aaron is they fell on the face before the assembly of the people, in verse 5. And Joshua, the son of Nun, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, were among those who spied out the land. They tear their clothes because they understand the truth. And they say, the land we pass through to spy out is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then the warning. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are, they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. See, one of the clear indications of that you're doing God's will is usually everybody thinks you're crazy and everybody's against you and you're not going the popular way especially when you're surrounded by people who prefer paganism, which is the case there. Nevertheless, the leaders love the people. Uh, Moses intercedes for them so God would not just wipe them out. He focuses on God's character down in verse 18 and 19. The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation, Uh, Pardon the iniquity of this people, Moses praying to God. I pray according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you've forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And the Lord says, I've pardoned them. The Lord forgives them. See, the Lord forgives us all the time. We confess those sins 10,896 times, and God always forgives us. But there are times when God says enough is enough. There are consequences. And so God says uh, in verse 21, But truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times, uh, ten different times they've been disobedient in the wilderness, they have not heeded my voice. They certainly shall not see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. In other words, there are consequences. They're not going to go into the land. It doesn't mean that they lose their salvation. It doesn't mean they're unbelievers. It means that at this point they have exercised a lot of unbelief as a, as a Christian, as I mean, excuse me, as a believer, and so God is going to bring judgment upon them. And this is what what He announces. And then when you get skip down to verse twenty eight. Say to them, says the Lord, as I live, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness, all of you who were numbered according to your entire number, from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. And so this is uh, what's announced. But the people, in, in, in continuing unbelief, say, oh, well, we don't believe you. You've forgiven us, so we're going to go fight anyway. And so they attempt to invade the land, and the Amalekites and Canaanites uh, defeat them, and that's what happens at the end of the, ch- end of the chapter. So now, back to Jude chapter 5. When we go back to Jude 5, we can read this a little more intelligently. When Jude says, I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having physically delivered the people or rescued the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. He destroyed them in the rebellion of Korah. He destroyed them through the uh, uh, bite of the fiery serpent. And he destroys the, ends up destroying all but two in that Exodus generation because of their unbelief. It doesn't mean that they weren't saved. It's not using, Jude isn't using this as an example of God's eternal judgment on unbelievers, but as an example that God judges unbelief. And this is the thrust of what he is saying in, in this, uh, this epistle. Now next time we'll come back and look at one of the most, truly most interesting set of verses, verses six and seven. And these are very important for understanding the identification of the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6 
and also, again, examples of God's judgment on unbelief. In this case, it's judgment on those disobedient uh, angels of Genesis 6, the sons of God, and judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, in both of these cases, uh, we're talking about uh, unbelievers here. Uh, in the case of the angels, it's not really unbelievers. It's just a disobedience, a increasingly disobedient segment of angels. And then with Sodom and Gomorrah, of course, all are unbelievers except for Lot and his uh, his family. So we'll look at those two and how this is expressed by uh, by Jude here is is really interesting and opens up a, a great understanding of this these episodes. Uh, that took place in the Old Testament. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded that even as believers, though we have eternal life, we can be disobedient, come under your uh, harsh judgment for our unbelief, that we are not to live on the basis of faith in ourselves or faith in our own understanding, but we are to trust in you with all our heart and not lean on our own understanding And only when we do that do you direct our paths and open the doors before us that we might experience the rich fullness of blessing that you have for us as believers. But we must take seriously into account the warnings of divine discipline for disobedience. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.